Hey, Newsacast listeners, you can find every episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Please help us grow by subscribing or sharing the Newsacast with friends or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Now let's get this show on the road. There's a difference between guiding and fishing. Like, if I'm guiding, I would never do that. But if I'm fishing with you, I'm going to catch all of them in front of you. I'm being set up right now by Tops. Welcome to the NoosaCast. What is a NoosaCast? It's where we bring local folk stories to life through conversation. Uh, welcome to this journey that we're on. Uh, we're we're in four weeks now, episode four. Not that I'm shocked that we've made it this far, but I'm shocked that it's uh, going as smoothly as it is right now, Joe. Yeah, we're rolling right along, Tash. Indeed, we are. It's a fly fishing episode, Tash. Can you believe that? Yeah, this one's going to be a little bit different for the uh, listeners. Um, we kind of looked at some of your more traditional sports over the last three weeks, but we're going to take a look at the outdoors because, you know, really when you think about sports, Wisconsin has a huge culture of hunting and fishing. Uh, that is that is a, a, a major economic boost um, when you look at places like Shields and Fleet Farm and Dick's Sporting Goods. Uh, so so this is a this is a is one to hit hit the masses, so to speak, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's culture definitely for a lot of people. Heritage people grow up with deer hunting, duck hunting, pheasant hunting, you name it. Just being outdoors doesn't even necessarily have to be hunting. I, you know, you and I have done our fair share of you know backpacking trips and kayaking, canoeing, all that kind of stuff. So it's it's just the outdoors, and is is we'll find out in in this episode, and it literally blew my mind i had no idea that the high schools had the outdoor clubs like, like they did and these kids getting exposed to duck hunting turkey hunting whatever almost anything that they want um available to them right at the high school to go give it a shot and that, that's how you start building up a, a a love of all of the outdoors and, and a love of the outdoors and and a appreciation for what we have and something right. that we can pass on on to generation after generation our kids our grandkids and you know like like the old saying is we're not we don't own this land we're only borrowing it from our grandkids and uh this this brings that to light as we look into this uh outdoor episode as we like to call it here you're looking back we we, we had a lot of fun doing these interviews we'll, we'll talk a little bit later but uh going up to tim's fly fishing shop up in De Pere. Well, what an afternoon that was, but you're absolutely right. It goes even beyond that shop. It's, it's about protecting the land, and, and Tim talks a lot about the Menominee River and the coalition there to, to protect fresh water. It's just, it's more than the outdoors. You're right. It's it's protecting the land. It, it's uh, it's protecting the next generation. Yeah, and yeah, we're going to hear about that and Tim's passion for it as well, and Ryan's passion for it uh, with the Outdoor Club, and passion uh, from the Menominee River Coalition as well. What a great organization uh, trying to... Uh, make sure that that river, that body of water stays there and is protected for generations to come. I'm really looking forward to uh, people getting a glimpse at at these uh, two groups and uh, to, to learn a little bit more about the world around them and how we can protect it and continue to protect it. 
Absolutely. And, and in the spirit of the Red Smith Banquet, it was, you know, the Red Smith All Sports Award Banquet. It's important that the NoosaCast touches all sports. So this is uh, definitely a new sport for us. And I had so much fun with this and, and I learned a ton. All right, Tosh, we have a very special interview coming up. One, like I said in the opening, I had no idea this was going on in the school system, and it is really, really cool. I, I don't know how else to say it, but I'm going to let you do the introduction. Mr. Marks is an incredible guy, an incredible program, and he runs an outdoor program at Appleton East, and come to find out, most of the high schools have similar programs. Yeah, you know what? It's a great opportunity. Um, you know, we, we always are looking, how can we get kids to feel good about being in school and want to come to school? Because the more they're in school, the more engaged they are and the better they're going to do. Um, so uh, Ryan Marks started this outdoor club. I teach with Ryan at Appleton East. And it's a, it's a great opportunity for kids who maybe don't do the sports or the theater or the clubs, but now they have a club that they can be passionate about because they're passionate about something that's been handed down from their family, from their parents, from their grandparents. And, you know, we're talking about uh, renting decoys and fishing equipment and all the way to you're going to find out that there is actually a state tournament for ice fishing. So this is a great interview with Mr. Marks and uh, he's, a, he's a great guy and doing some amazing things. Uh, to really promote the environments and promote the world around us. Listeners, we're here with Ryan Marks, and Ryan Marks is a teacher at Appleton East. Um, if you don't know him, you're going to know him after this episode. He's a huge amount of energy and a blast to talk with. Um, we're really excited because he is going to talk about the outdoor club at Appleton East. And for those of you who don't know, uh, outdoor clubs are growing throughout the state of Wisconsin. Uh, there's even a state fishing tournament, which you're going to hear about as well. And so we're going to get the whole story about how the club started at Appleton East. And um, we're really excited for you to hear uh, about the Appleton East uh, Scott Fisher Outdoor Club and what it's all about. All right. Well, thank you. Could you tell us, Ryan, just a little bit about yourself and your background with hunting and fishing and growing up and things like that? Yeah, I, I actually, uh, you know, did not hunt that, that much as a, as a child, my dad was disabled from Vietnam. So, um, he really wasn't into hunting. I, I didn't, you know, hunt very often, um, as a youngster, cause I said my dad was disabled from Vietnam war. Um, but then as I got older, I got, you know, a little bit more involved into it and, I found the just the passion for, you know, being outside, and I always was into fishing. And then, you know, the older I got, this the more I loved, you know, spending time outdoors and you know, getting more involved in in things and um, trying to get my kids involved, and then obviously with trying to get uh, students involved. But you know, the Corey Fisher Outdoor Club started with. A, you know, former alumni that that from Appleton East that passed away and his family wanted to give back, you know, to the community. So they gave us, you know, some money to be able to start this club. And we have this, 
you know, shed at, uh, you know, really a garage at Appleton East that students are able to, you know, check out things to be able to, you know, go hunting, go, you know, fishing. We have a musky club that, you know, people can rent out musky rods. We have people that can rent out, you know, decoys. In fact, just this past Sunday, uh, four students rented out. Well, they just not rent, but they just take out, uh, you know, pigeon decoys, go pigeon hunting. It's just a such an awesome, awesome thing to get, you know, students involved in, um, you know, just outdoor activities that are just, you know, you know, really exciting to see, you know, them get out and, you know, do things outside. Ryan, what year was the outdoor club started? Um, well, the, the fishing team that, that goes, that's a separate thing that, that started, a, you know, quite a while ago, 2012, maybe. But the Cory Fisher, the Cory Fisher Outdoor Club, we really, you know, COVID kind of put a, a damper on that. So really, since COVID, it's been, you know, much better with being able to get students out, you know, outside, you know, hunting sure. and fishing. No, absolutely. Did you know Corey at all? What kind of guy was he? Yeah, he was. He was awesome. Um, and I went to school with his brother, Dave, and you know, now I'm, you know, very good friends with their. And I have been friends with their family, but I, uh, their dad, uh, you know, him and I, and obviously, you know, it's something special for him, you know, just uh, knowing that, you know, Corey's, you know, legacy and his, you know, passion for hunting and fishing is living on through other students at Appleton East. What an incredible gift, really. I mean, and like you, you had said earlier, I mean, it, it turns into a lifelong passion. Yeah, and that that's the thing that that's great. I mean, there are so many students that have never tried, you know, either, you know, could be duck hunting, could be goose hunting. You know, this spring we had, you know, five new students that check out uh, turkey blinds um, and, you know, go turkey hunting. So, you know, some people don't have the, the means for the, could be equipment, could be, you know, blinds, you know, some of that stuff is super, super expensive, especially waterfall hunting. You know, it's very expensive. Most people just can't go out and buy, you know, a bunch of decoys and, you know, say they want to go hunting. Sure. So do they have a guide then that goes with them or, you know, kids that want to try turkey hunting for the first time? How how does the club work? Yeah, we have a few, you know, people that are they're volunteers and we're always looking for, for more. And a few of, you know, like myself and a few other uh, parents have, you know, take kids out few people from you know a couple musky clubs that you know will say hey i i have an opening on the boat is there any way i can you know do you have anyone that's interested we'll send a message out and then you know people go out uh there or even a couple people have gone salmon fishing with you know the same thing so say hey as you have anyone that's interested do you uh use your words of encouragement similar to the football field with the kids yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's a little easier uh, to get people to go out hunting and fishing. Hey, you know, I, I, being a science teacher and, and teaching with you, Ryan, we've always talked about that kids don't get outside enough anymore. It's not like it used to be where, you know, you were outside all day just doing whatever, playing pickup yeah. baseball or looking and stuff. Do you see um, with this club um, your numbers have grown in the last couple of years? And you know this from, you know, being there, we have uh, – you know, strong group of alumni that that are giving back now that are, you know, the ones that are taking out students that we have now to go out fishing. 
Um, and some of them, the alumni that are taking out, you know, kids, you know, could be duck hunting, could be goose hunting. Um, so that's the thing that I love is they're, you know, scenic grow is important to them. And then they're trying to give back to, uh, you know, students because they know what position that they are in. And, you know, especially when it comes to certain hunting things, safety is obviously first. So it's not like I can take, you know, a ton of kids out you know, uh, duck hunting at the same time. So, um, but that, that's, you know, pretty awesome. And I do see it, you know, more and more kids, you know, that are interested and I wish more kids would actually try it out because, and everyone knows, I mean, so many students and some of my, my kids, you know, myself, even though they love the hunt and fish, I feel that they're, you know, addicted to their cell phones and so many, you know, students, they just, they could sit on their phone all day long or, you know, stream some type of show without ever getting outside. But it's just a, a great opportunity to get, you know, students involved in, you know, something that, you know, they might not have that opportunity if they don't have a dad that does it or maybe an uncle that does it. I I, I agree with you. And, you know, when we think about, about the cell phone, and having this like mini computer in our hand, these kids have hunting games and they have fishing games. And every time they, they shoot a buck or another time a fish, as soon as they cast out. So when they go out and sit outside, they might not see an animal. They might not catch a fish. And that turns some of those kids off because they're so used to that instant gratification. A hundred percent, you know, and some of them, especially certain type of hunting, especially deer hunting is so much harder because they're some people just, they don't, they can't sit there and they don't have that patience to be able to wait and wait and wait. You know, at least if you're all goose hunting for sure, you know, something that you can be talking to your buddies and stuff like that. So, you know, that, that's a yeah. little bit easier, but um, you know, to, to have someone just say they are going to go, uh, sit out deer hunting and maybe not see anything. Um, that's pretty tough. So you've also talked about forming some relationships with some of the businesses in the area. Um, what are some of the businesses that really are are uh, behind you and the outdoor club? You know the the real shot has been uh, you know great. You know right away that you know like I said the couple of, you know musky clubs and we get you know. Obviously, the Corey Fisher uh, family that, you know, did, donated money. And we, we get, you know, some other donations here. You know, Shields, you know, once in a while give some, you know, gift cards. And then, you know, sometimes we get, you know, people that do hear about it and say they are done, you know, don't really have the drive to go hunting anymore. So then they'll call up and ask if, you know, do you have a need for any of these decoys or could be some, you know, fishing tackle or thing, things like that. So that definitely, you know, helps out. Some of the national companies also give you discounts. Yeah, we get a pretty good deal, especially through the, uh, you know, WIFA, the state, you know, fishing. There's quite a few discounts, especially for fishing equipment that we get. And then we get, you know, some of the other, um, you know, Lucky Duck and some of the other ones that, you know, give us a discount too, which is obviously huge. Yeah, and like you said, I think I I don't think people realize the financial need for some of the students that we have in high school. You know, this is an opportunity for them to get out and like we said, to enjoy something for the rest of their lives. And I, I think that's the thing that I, you know, really, really love is that, you know, 
something so easy as you know you give a kid a fishing pole and something that they can enjoy and you're into and you know your your friends into you know fly fishing i mean you sit in a you know river you know trying to catch trout and it's just so beautiful so peaceful and you know it's not always about you know what you catch or what you you know shoot it's just about you know enjoying nature and trying to get people to be you know like we say stewards of the land to try to you know, take care of, of that. And that's a, another thing that, you know, um, you know, all these fishing coaches, you know, especially, you know, Chris Jones and Nina and, you know, the Papishes at, you know, Appleton North, they're, you know, trying to make kids to be stewards and pick up after themselves. And that they, you know, that's so important also to, you know, obviously take care of our environment. Ryan, you mentioned um, that some of the high school teams, I mean, it gets kind of competitive in, in these clubs, doesn't it? Well, it, it really does get competitive. Um, yeah. And it's getting harder and harder because, you know, some of the schools, you know, they have in, in you know, people that do fish a lot, you know, they have these live scopes, super expensive. I mean, we're talking, you know, 3000 a piece. And, you know, some of the schools have, you know, eight, nine of them. And, you know, it's, it's not, a level playing field anymore <laughs> compared to what it used to be before. I mean, everyone, you know, kind of, they would have, you know, a little bit better equipment, but these things are, are game changers. So how does the tournament work? A high school tournament? The, you know, there's some of them that are virtual, but you can fish any body of water, any public body of water. And, but like the, there's a lot of tournaments that, you know, they'll have, a specific, you know, lake or a couple lakes and certain boundaries you have. And then you got to catch, you know, let's just say, you know, five, you know, your top five Northern, your top five bass, your top five, you know, walleye. And then you have a, like a stringer of panfish could be 15 panfish. Um, and then it's all done on this app called fish donkey. And, you know, like it's, it's, really well done the people that you know organize it are i mean they're they're fantastic and that thing is just getting bigger and bigger um you know we are one of the first teams to uh join and you know i think there might have been 20 some teams now there's i believe over 140 some maybe 160 wow and those are high school teams yeah wow where is the tournament in 2024? Uh, it should be coming out real quick. The board meeting is this week, so I'm assuming that it will come out sometime soon. What are your numbers like for the outdoor club? I know we have our uh, at East. We have our days where we can have kids come in. What what are what are your consistent numbers as far as your outdoor club right now? Uh, you know, I probably have a lot more sign up for it than than actually you know participate in a lot of the events but you know right when i have the sign up you know last year was like 57 students you know signed up uh and then probably a good consistent 25 26 you know will you know come to meetings and come to the events that's awesome it's a great opportunity for kids and you know like like we said before this is a a chance for them to get excited about something in their school that they might not have anything else that brings them in. So that's, that's awesome. What are some size wise, how does your club compare to some of the other clubs in the state? Ours is pretty, pretty decent. There's some that are 
absolutely huge. And some of them, like uh, Nina, they start in middle school, so they have a middle school program. And I believe that they had, could be 80 kids that were in their uh, program. Uh, one of the things that I do like is, you know, some schools, you know, they just only want kids that are really good fishermen or, you know, uh, you know, f- for me and Eric, you know this, I just want, you know, kids to be outside. So if kids, even if their students have never, ever fished before ice fish, uh, we'll take them and, you know, I provide the tip ups and jig poles for them to get out. And, um, it's a lot of fun, especially some of them, you know, do they, they learn real quick that it's not something for them. And, you know, the biggest thing is if, if they don't have proper equipment, you know, I've had students come out and, you know, do not even have, you know, warm boots, um, to stand on the ice all day. So they, they really don't make it too long. As these students go out and you're entering in all of these uh, different contests in the state, do these kids get recognized as like? Yeah, they, they have this uh, master angler program, which is awesome. So, and it's just a, a list of all these different species that, you know, they have a certain size that they have to be to get the master angler program. If they catch five or more of these master angler fish, they get a plaque. And then they have, uh, you know, like a competition for whoever's, they call it the, you know, master angler of the year. And it's absolutely incredible what some of these students have done. I mean, and we've had some right in our local area that have won it. Um, There's Brendan Papish from Appleton North. There's Riley Hemi from Kakana. And they're they're two of the best fishermen that I know. I mean, they're they're absolutely uh, amazing. Do some of the colleges have clubs like this? There's college teams uh, that have fishing teams. And there's some of them that, you know, some of these students actually, you know, there's scholarships available for fishing. And a lot of people don't know that, which is pretty awesome. I know UW-Stevens Point, uh, they actually have wild game kitchens in each of the dorms that are just for for the students who go out and fish. And they can go and clean their own fish in the wild game and cook it up and right in their dorms. So, yeah, I, as of course, Stevens Point's a little bit different because it's such a natural resource, you know, DNR type of school. That's a great example of that. That's fantastic. This, this, I, I never knew this existed. It's so awesome to hear. It's pretty crazy. You know, and it, it got so big so fast. I mean, you know, a lot of people probably never heard of the, you know, whiff of uh, fishing, but it's, I mean, it, it's really, really uh, grown. Did you say it grew since COVID? It definitely has gotten a lot, lot bigger since COVID. And I think that, you know, like in anyone that is an outdoorsman, they know that COVID, I mean, they couldn't even keep stuff in, in stock. Um, right. You know, so many places, so many people. The good thing is, you know, they did get out, outdoors, which obviously that's a, a plus. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and you I see think that in the golf world, I mean, golf. Oh yeah, for sure. COVID, I think bike riding, you know, bicyclists. That that's it. Pick, you know, pickleball. I mean, there's been a lot more outdoor sports mm-hmm. here, and then maybe that's the one good thing that came out of COVID is, is maybe that that pushed everybody outside and would keep the momentum going. Yeah, that definitely that definitely happened for sure. On on the page, it says that there's it says 130 schools and growing. But I think I thought it was 140 some, but I could be wrong. I I will say standing in the hallway, 
I have students come up and show me the fish they catch. Um, <laughs> when, when they're out, you know, with Ryan and the state tournament and stuff like that, you know, it's just like, like any other, other sport or any other activity or club at the school, these kids are recognized, uh, and they like to be, you know, talked to about, about the things they're doing as well. It, it's Ryan does an amazing job. I mean, I'm not just, you know, blowing steam here. He does a great job and these kids absolutely love it. It, it serves such a need. I mean, we both preach the fact that, you know, we need to get kids outside in our classes, um, teaching earth science and teaching environmental. Ryan does an amazing job with uh, all of these students. That's making a difference. Both yeah. of you guys should be commended for sure. It's uh, action speaks louder than words and you guys are doing it. Yeah, it, it is awesome. And like Eric said, there are some students that it's the really only thing that they feel involved with at school. You know, the you could be fishing club or hunting club or both. Uh, but they find that and, you know, it, it, it helps them, you know, kind of give them you know, a little bit of purpose. And like Eric said, you know, we have T-shirts, stuff like that. So um, just like a regular uh, sports team would have. You know, for people who might be listening and uh, they might hear this, uh, they contact you if maybe they have uh, equipment that they want to donate or anything like that to the club. Yeah, that would be great. And we, we love that, obviously. Um, and it's all appreciated. All right, Tosh, it's that time again. An old look at new is where we uh, take a take a look back in time in northeastern Wisconsin. It's uh, some event, some some date back in time that we, we've stumbled across and want to bring that to you. So, Tash, what's your old look at new? Well, I'm going to go back to 1996, and I, I remember this one because I was there at this. And uh, 1996, I'm going to throw a few names at you. Lou Pinella, Alex Rodriguez, Ken Griffey Jr., Dan Wilson competed in what became a home run contest yes. at Timber Rattler Stadium. I remember that. They flew in for an for a game that they're going to do against the Timber Rattlers, a little scrimmage, a little uh, exhibition game for, for the people around here. And all these people show up, and it's raining. I remember and, that. Uh, the Timber Rattlers had a young man, 20 years old, by the name of David Aries, which is – not the name he goes by now. It's David Ortiz. So Big Poppy was here, and uh, we got to uh, see him smash some home runs. Dan Wilson eventually won the home run contest because Ken Griffey Jr. struggled, if you can believe that. But, yeah, 1996. The sweetest swing in baseball, awesome. Ken Griffey Jr. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's it's one of the beautiful things of having minor league baseball teams that, that just periodically magic like this happens. And I remember that night. I remember, I remember going to the game. I was going to go to the game with my my dad was uh, still alive at that time. And um, yeah, the weather the weather turned bad, but they the Timber Rattlers they uh, they salvaged it. So you know, the big yeah. league club flies in here into the jet. Hits a couple of home runs <laughs> and hops back on the plane and head off to I don't even know where they played that the next night. I, yeah, I don't remember either. I don't remember that piece, but I remember that home run contest. I remember sitting up in the, 
underneath the uh, the stadium, and so I wasn't getting wet. But yeah, that was fun. That was a good time. That that stadium has grown since uh, since then. Get out there and see it now. Full view all around the entire outfield. I know, so that's nuts. That's check it so, out. so cool. I want to go down the slide too. <laughs> Joe, what do you got? All right, Tash, I'm going to take us back a little bit. 1965 right here in Appleton, Wisconsin. And I wasn't quite alive back then, but I certainly know that Titletown was being built just a couple of miles to the north of us. I've heard the stories of Max McGee and Paul Horning coming down to the left guard with Fuzzy Thurston. The one thing we didn't have, but it came in 1965 and it changed all our lives. I'm talking about a little store that opened up on West Wisconsin Avenue, July 22nd, 1965, Fleet Farm. Grand opening. (laughs) Come on now, Tosh. Fleet Farm. There you go. That ties in. That's a little outdoor club right there. Well, we're talking fly fishing. fishing. Absolutely. We were talking outdoors this episode and... uh, Really? 1965? 1965, the Mills Brothers brought Fleet Farm to Appleton, Wisconsin. Wow. That is awesome. That's good. They didn't have have the orange silo at the time, but you know what? I bet you the smell was identical, don't you? (laughs) The smell of tires. You bet. There, I think they pumped that in. Some of my favorite podcasts, I, I think I've, I've talked to you, the, the, the guys, the barstool guys down in Chicago, every Monday they, they do, they draft something. And one, one episode was the smells, best, best or worst smells draft. And for me, I mean, nobody outside of here would, would know what we're talking about, but the Fleet Farm <laughs> smell, it's epic. Absolutely. I mean, there's the yep. most distinct and you know where you're at. You're at Fleet Farm. Absolutely. That's a great one. That's excellent. And now there's, they got their headquarters here in Appleton at the old Secura building. Yes. Off of Memorial Drive. So it's excellent. Fleet Farm, keep on rocking. We love it. And that's our old look at new. All right, NoosaCast listeners, we have a, a special interview. Uh, a really close friend of mine, Tim Landwar, who owns the Tight Lines Fly Fishing Shop up in De Pere, Wisconsin. A good friend of mine introduced me to the sport of fly fishing, along with our good friend, uh, Sam Tion. Uh, Sam is really responsible for introducing myself to Tim, and our, our friendships have just grown. But he's got this amazing story. Um, fly fishing is one of those things that, I like because I can just be out in a stream and listen to the the water running and the bugs and the birds and everything else. Uh, it, it's uh, it's it's amazing to me to just be able to get out and relax. But the shop itself and the experiences Tim has are absolutely incredible. Well, we had one of those experiences doing this this podcast. This. First of all, this is the first time the NoosaCast has ever gone remote, so we were super excited to to bring our uh, well, our little bit of equipment up to uh, <laughs> up to Tim's fly fishing shop. I have never been to a fly fishing shop before. We've never done a podcast remote before, so it was an exciting new day for us. And you walk into Tim's. I didn't know what to expect at a fly fishing shop. I've seen pictures, so I'm certainly expecting to see flies, but. Uh, First thing I do is I, I, I see guitars, I hear bluegrass music, I see the Steal Your Face, Grateful Dead uh, logo on a really, really cool t-shirt. Uh, didn't even see, I didn't even say hi to Tim, I actually beeline right for that shirt. But we, we had a heck of a time, and to learn about 
what Tim does being, I mean, the guy was a banker. He left that world to become a fly fishing guide and, and to hear, to hear that story, to see and understand the success of this shop. I mean, 22 years running fly shop in green Bay, Wisconsin. I mean, let's go. It's awesome. You guys are going to love this episode. Um, you're going to learn a little bit about Tim and, um, you know, local business shop local and just enjoy Tim's infection for the sports and, uh, for the outdoors and the Menominee River Coalition as well. You'll hear the excitement, I'm sure, in, in this. We were sitting in Tim's office. The the audio quality might not be 100% perfect, but the conversation is certainly 100% perfect. I had so much fun. I learned so much. And just to hear Tim's story, you, you guys are all going to enjoy this. It's, it's fantastic. Welcome, NoosaCast listeners. We have a special guest to myself. Uh, this close personal friend, and we're going to hear his story, his journey. So welcome, Tim. Well, thank you guys very much for having me today. This is fun. This is going to be a blast. I am super excited. Oh my gosh, are we ever? First time in a fly fishing shop for me. I walked into a music shop. I was attracted to a Grateful Dead shirt, <laughs> and we ended up talking fly fishing later. But That's it. Well, I love this place. Talk music and fishing. Yeah, I mean, it is one of those things. Like It, it is a fly fishing store which in the Midwest is unique in itself because kind of a funny story. There's like, there's six or seven designated fly fishing only stores in the entire state of Wisconsin. Montana has, I think through our trade organizations, like 1,360,000 some, like, I mean, it's, it's a ridiculous amount of fly fishing stores because it's just cultural. So this is kind of like a barbershop here, you know, in the fishing community we've been kind of, looked at as like the fishing barber shop. In the hour or two that we've been here, we, we've hung out with Tim for a bit. It is. I can see that where, where people just come in, hang out, shoot the breeze for a bit, maybe buy a, something and, and take off. That's it. Yeah. That's it. It's, yeah. it's just kind of part of the deal. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's not, it's not an Amazon. It's not a Walmart. It's just a weird fly fishing store. And a place to talk guitars maybe for a half hour or two, right? <laughs> Yeah, Dave, our, our, our uh, store manager is an incredibly talented guitar builder. He's, Absolutely. he's modest, but it's you've seen it, Tosh. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. And it's funny, you brought up the Montana, and I know you, you've told me this in the past. It's almost like things are flipped. The population of Wisconsin is equal to the fly fishing shops, and the fly fishing shops are equal to the population. <laughs> it's funny, yeah. Yeah. You know, we get that all the time, you know. Um we were just discussing a little while ago, but you know, it's, it's such a cultural thing. The fly fishing component of the fishing world, you know, fishing, the fishing world in the state of Wisconsin is massive, but we grow up in a lake culture here. I mean, this is big boats, the Bay of green Bay, or maybe that fab family cabin, you know, up on the lake. Uh, so we get people all the time that come in and kind of look around like, so just fly fishing, huh? And then they're, <laughs> and then they're, they're kind of, I mean, they're trying to be nice but they're like, so uh how long you guys been in business you know best of luck and they tell me 22 years like oh my god <laughs> <laughs> the best part is uh was it during covid when you were on wixx yeah. no yeah no which one was it i can't remember but you were of the shops that people wanted to oh my gosh that was that was actually a was that a podcast from some guys in the valley it was i think remember their name it's a big deal though yeah they, but, they said like i don't want to they don't want to cut you off here Tosh, but they had said like 
places during COVID that you would rob. Yes. In tight lines, fly fishing was like, and, and it was funny because they're like, so what you're going to do is you're going to steal this old man's dream. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's exactly so it. So they beat him down. They're like, can't rob a little family. Like it was that. hilarious. It was awesome. <laughs> but, you know, we're at this point. We might as well just talk a little bit about the shop. All right. You guys have been around for 22 yes, sir. years. 22 years. Yeah. Yeah. What? How did that start? Uh, a foolish decision, uh, <laughs> probably. No, it was kind of funny because I look back on that and I was 27 or something. And, um, you know, I, I had like a real job and, you know, I mean, kind of doing this whole deal. And looking back on it, I like, thought this would be a great idea. And I mean, it turned out to be a great idea, but but thinking about it now, like what a scary, dumb decision, but <laughs> yeah. do a lot of hard work and stuff, you know, it's, it's all worked out in like 22 years. And, um, you know, we're still doing it, everything from guides and classes and yeah. the retail store, the online store, teaching people the art of fly fishing and just being part of people's lives in a different, different level. So yeah, 22 years already. So fly fishing, I mean, did you grow up with fly fishing? Did you, how, how did this become a dream? That's a, that's a great question, Joe, because like, I think I grew up fishing and, you know, some kids would retaliate from their parents, with, you know, I'm going to buy a motorcycle or I'm drinking underage or something like Bart, my cousin and I became fly fishermen. Like it was like, oh my God, they're fly fishermen now. We only fish with worms. So, I mean, like when we were really young, my grandma had a cabin up north and we would start to just bring these fly rods up, not knowing what we're really doing. And it just like blew up. We just absolutely loved it. So we started tying flies and, you know, it just became part of part of who I am, became part of my being. And uh, it just kept going and going. It, it eventually landed me out west guiding and kind of got my, my start professionally in it. So kids being kids, right? Kids being kids. That's it. Yep. Gotta love it. When when you and Bart were young, what were you fishing for? Anything, everything? I think at first, you know, everybody wants to try to catch a trout on a fly, right. but it's hard in Wisconsin <laughs> to learn how to catch a trout on a fly. So like we were just happy catching anything that would bite it. <laughs> That's awesome. So you grew up in this area. You went to school. I, I went to high school. Yeah. So this was this was kind of. I'll give you the backstory if we have yeah, time. For absolutely. Yeah. So I um, I think I was a bit of a disappointment to my parents when I decided to take this path. <laughs> um, I actually went to NWTC out of right. high school, not really knowing what I wanted to do, and went to marketing or I don't know, but I just knew that it coincided with certain hatches that sh I should be fishing. So I couldn't even patch it together in a technical college. I, I just couldn't do it. I didn't have the motivation to do it. So uh, I worked in a bike shop and a ski shop for, for years. Uh, my good friend, still my very good friend, Neller started their snowboard shop. for, And then eventually started to work in a bank. Cause I had to do something, you know, I grew up in a family, like you, you, you gotta have a purpose. It's just, you know, a focus, that's what you gotta do. So I worked in the bank as a teller and I moved up the ranks pretty quickly to uh, lending and even a little bit of business lending and things like that. And I absolutely hated it. You know, it's kind of like anybody who's had that job that you just punch the clock, like I hated it. And one day, went into after about three years of working there, went into my banking manager's office and I said, 
I said, I'm, I'm going to be leaving. She said, oh, no, you're going to give your two weeks notice. I said, no, like, I'm, I'm leaving, like, right now. <laughs> I went and I packed my truck, and I had really no plans, and I drove to Big Sky, Montana that day and just was wow. going to figure out, like, it was going to be bartending or whatever I had to do, patch fences, to yeah. just be there and just to get to fish. So that's kind of how it all started. So that's where the disappointment as a child <laughs> You're, we're all dads. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Well, this is a terrible idea. Right. You're 27 years old at this point? No, at that point, I was I was 27 when we opened the shop. I got you. Okay. So I was probably 23. Okay. 22. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I was probably 23. You literally, and, and we talk about parents. I mean, my yeah. kid is, my oldest is getting real close to, to that age. Yeah. And, and you wonder, what are they going to do in a 23-year Dude, I want to be, this is what I want. This is my calling. I'm going after it, and it's working. It, it is, Joe, but there wasn't really a calling at that point. It was like a, it was just, I'm leaving. I yeah. didn't know it was calling. Yeah. I just knew I wanted to finish it. Right. Right. <laughs> and it, uh, uh, basically what ended up happening, I landed at the 20 Ranch in Big Sky, Montana, full working ranch, and uh, I was going to just sling beers and wash dishes or whatever I had to do but they had a pond on the ranch. It was a big guest ranch. And they had stocked this pond with big rainbows. And I was out there casting one day and a gentleman by the name of J.D. Bigman, who owned Wild Trout Outfitters, saw me casting and I said, hey, would you be interested in teaching casting lessons to some of the guests? So it kind of started like that. We became friends and said, hey, would you be willing to be the guide? Well, I didn't have two nickels to rub together at that point, fellas. So he let me tie flies in his shop and he paid for my guide's license, out-of-state guide's license, and he paid for my first aid CPR and wilderness first aid. Wow. He get me on my guide flies to do that. And that's kind of how it all started. It's amazing. So, yeah, I just kind of love really good people that kind of helped me along the way. Oh, it's it, that's just incredible. I love that. I love that. <laughs> so you're in Montana. You, yeah. You're doing that. You do you kind of see the vision then? I mean, do you understand that maybe maybe I want to be a guide? Kind of. How are you learning? Like the yeah, being I mean, a guide is so fascinating is, to me. I I did I had guided here, you know, also before moving out there, kind of part time and kind of packing it together. And then when I was out there, it was full time guiding. But I always thought. Wisconsin could use a fly fishing store. I've always longed for that with that Western feel of you're in a fly shop out West. You've been in them before. Gosh, you know, it's like kind of a thing. But that was going to be my ultimate goal, even though it was kind of a, a pipe dream. Right. To do that. Right. And along the way, while I was out there, I met this beautiful young 19 <laughs> year old girl who's five years younger than me. And um, we had made an arrangement that if she booked me as a guide to the ranch, I would buy her dinner each night. Yeah. And now it's day to celebrate 25 years of marriage. That's amazing. So, Congratulations. That's awesome. He, yes. I will say her father was unimpressed with me. However. <laughs> Andy, I love you. You know, we've, we've won by attrition. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, we, we have a running theme already of being unimpressed with things. So. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's awesome. And Sarah's amazing. So big shout out to Sarah, by the way, as well. Hope you're doing well. Always love seeing her. Yep. So that's that's a, a cool story. Just thinking back to, you know, we, we talk about youth and youth sports. Yeah. Somebody 
trusting in you. Yeah. That's an incredible feeling and an incredible opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. And fly fishing in Montana, um, you know, we're here in Northeast Wisconsin is a whole nother beast. Yeah. I just went out and tried to do it myself with my boys when we were on the Yellowstone. It's a little bit different than Wisconsin. <laughs> it, <laughs> it is. It was fun, though. It is. It's always fun. Yeah. yeah. And we, when we were out there, um, Tim's former shop manager, Charlie, yeah. uh, he and my oldest son, Will, uh, got together and they tied flies. And Will was the first one to catch one on one of the flies he tied, which was incredible as well. So, so it's just full circle when that yes. happens. You know, that's the pieces parts. So you spend about four or five years out there? Just a handful of seasons out there and, and, and met Sarah. And um, she was kind of jumping around, you know, a couple different schools. And, you know, it was just one of those deals. She moved back to Wisconsin while I ran a snowboard shop. I was doing that and then guiding in the off season, running the snowboard shop. And um, we had a little, she, she moved here, finished her undergrad here. And we had a little nest egg that we were going to buy a house. We were married. We we're going to buy a house. And she said, we don't need to buy a house yet. And that's what we did. We opened the fly shop. So that was kind of how it works. Yeah. And 22 years later. And the fly shop first existed downtown De Pere. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Right by St. Norbert College was our first location. And they did the construction between the East and West De Pere bridges that would have put me out of business. So uh, the shout out to Sarah and how that worked was we had finally purchased after the shop our first little tiny house on Grant Street. Very excited. We have our first home. And then we realized that we would be out of business if I kept the fly shop in that location. So we purchased the building that we're in here, sold our home, and she decided it would be just fine to live upstairs for another five years yeah. in the fly shop. So <laughs> nice. I got a good one. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> And Tosh, we should mention we're actually in the fly shop. First time on the road for the new Sacast recording. So yeah. yeah, we've been hanging out with Tim in, in the fly shop. This is great. Yeah, you yeah. guys popped in, so we've been fly shopping all afternoon or all morning. Yes, awesome. it's been fantastic. This is a common occurrence for me, but at first for Joe. <laughs> yes, so. yes, I'm loving this. I think the Grateful Dead wrote a song about this, didn't they? I believe so. Yeah, I believe so too. So talk more about a guide. What what, what group of guys want to get together and, and, and go fishing with you? I mean, is yeah. that, is that uh, how does it work? So walk me through it from start to finish. Sure. Well, what we offer is like the guides themselves have a special skill set in a certain area in our sport. Like we've been known for in the Midwest, we've been known for fishing for smallmouth bass on a fly, which actually is, I don't want to say it's a newer thing, but in the last 15 years, it's gained a lot of traction. And our guys have gotten a bunch of national recognition for what they do out there on the rivers. But guide trip can be anything, Joe. It could be something from I have a vast amount of fly fishing experience and want to, to see this through the guide's eyes, learn some new techniques, all the way to I have no experience and want to just learn how to do this. Right. The guides are kind of uh, their mentors through the day and you know, kind of help them along on their path. And the beautiful thing about the guiding component is – it's not just a trip, it's not just a fishing trip, like maybe a charter boat trip where you just troll all day and drink beers. This is kind of where you become really close with your clients. Some of my clients I've guided for 22, 23 years already. Sure. So they're like family. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great life. What makes a good guide? I mean, I've experienced for sure, but what, what makes a good guide? That's a really, really good question because a good guide is patient 
no matter what, you know, keeps his inside voice inside. There's probably some of those times you're like, oh, said that out loud. Yep. So, you know, I think patience, understanding the river and the fishing and everything else, but um, it's, it's really just about like, how is he interact with the customers? Do, do they want to come back because they had a great day? Not necessarily because the fishing was extraordinary, but they came back because like they just had a great time. Right. And that's what we do. That's what Tightlines does or tries to. Yeah. Yeah. And your, your guides are absolutely amazing. Every uh, single one of them are fantastic. Um, and yeah, I've got to experience it. And it, it's, it's a blast. Absolutely a blast. Especially when Tim, you know, Skypes fish from you. Because you're too slow, which I am. This, this is different because there's a difference between guiding and true. fishing. Like That's if true. I'm guiding, I would never do that. But if I'm fishing with you, I'm going to catch all of them in front of you. Yes. <laughs> and I apologize. Yeah. It was fun. It was a blast. Absolute blast. So when you're thinking, when you, you got into guiding, you and Bart were fishing, yep. little kids and yep. going through. I mean, how, how did that, who are you guiding through here in Wisconsin before you well, I mean, that was the tough part because we didn't have a reputation or you don't have a name. And in the state of Wisconsin, it's a really hard profession to get into. You can't just put your shingle out there and be like, I'm a fly fishing guide and people are going to flock here and come and fish with me. Absolutely. Um, so it was basically like family, friends and stuff okay. that knew you know, that you were, you were a fishy guy or that you had a certain expertise in a certain watershed or something. And then there was a an old shop here, Bob's Bait and Tackle, years ago that would refer some of those guys to us, you know, that kind of thing. But until we had the shop or until we worked through a shop out west, that's that's kind of how how it starts. Now, there are guide schools okay. that are out there. Uh, there's um, Yellow Dog and a couple other companies sure. run these week guide schools, but it's really hard to train a guide in two weeks to become like a, a guide. So, Somebody you trust, too. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yep, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because that's that's a big component of it for you, because you have these guys underneath you who are representing your shop. Yep. And if they're not good, clients are going to say they're not good, and that word of mouth is going to spread as well. So that's it. Every one of the guys that works for us is like a brother. I mean, you've you've met all of them, Joe. You haven't met them, but like, it's a brotherhood because we all live up north together. Sure. sure. sure man frat house now that's exactly what i told you <laughs> except the difference not just like we used to go to bed at like 1 30 now it's like my god it's five after nine <laughs> <laughs> turn in so uh but yeah i mean the, the guides are representatives of of what we do that's that's true how long have your guides been with you currently that's 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 it's a good question and excellent point. Like Bart has been with us for 23 years since we started guiding. Nate's been with me for 17 years. Um, Gavin's been with me for seven or nine years. We just lost a couple of them because they had families. and you know, uh, But most of them, uh, Gabe has been with me for now, I think, five years on the river already. And so he worked in the shop before that. Yep. Started when he was 15 years old yeah. in the shop. My son, you know. Yep. <laughs> Uh, so that's, that's a really cool thing. Cause these guides are not one summer guides. They've been with me for years. That's so, amazing. Yeah. Now I'm thinking an important part of, of, of being a good guide, having a successful business is a clean river. And, and I know that that's important to you, the Menominee river coalition. That's, 
I, I suppose in some sense, the lifeline of, of your business is making sure that that, that river. It, it, it is, Joe, and, and I, I appreciate you bringing that up because it's really what it's about. And it's, it's about clean water and everything else. And, and of course, the, the health of our smallmouth bass and the fishery, but it goes deeper than that. Like from a business standpoint, if, if somebody told me right now uh, that this proposed mine that I'll talk about in just a second weren't going to be, like could be vanished, uh, if I stop guiding, I would stop guiding on it tomorrow. You know, so it's it's the importance of the river. But for for your listeners, there's a proposed mine on the Menominee River. It's on the Michigan side, and it's 150 feet from the banks of the river itself. It's, it's a very short distance, and it is a full open pit sulfide mine of heavy metals. I believe it's zinc, copper, gold, and the scary part is. It will be two and a half to three times the size of an open pit mine of Lambeau Field, twice the depth, twice the, the height of two Statue of Liberties on top of one another, and that will be a full open pit sulfide mine. The thing that people don't understand is not only could it just poison the river, which is devastating because we need clean water, but this dumps directly into the Bay of Green Bay and Lake Michigan. Mm-hmm. And we're in a really sticky situation with it because border river between Wisconsin and Michigan, we share reciprocity on everything else from fishing licenses, boat access and everything. However, as a state of Wisconsin resident, I have no say on what happens because the mines out to be interesting. Yeah. So it, it's been put onto the 10 most endangered rivers in, in, in North America. And uh, it's a real thing. And the mine company, I know we need mines. I'm not not saying that that's not a thing. It's just a really bad place for this one. Right, right, right. We're fighting it as we can. And what type of work you're fighting? What what type of work are you doing? What uh, is the place people can go and support it? What uh, what, what can people do? Oh, absolutely, Joe. There's there's a grassroots organization called the Coalition to Save the River, And... It's a group of the hardest working retired people. I've, I mean, they, they've physically shut down Aquila, the first mining company, kind of single-handedly shut the first part of this down before they sold their mining rights. So jointheriver.org, I believe, or the coalition. I, I'll have to look. I, I got to look this up here. But it's Coalition to Save the Menominee River. You'll be able to find them on Instagram, Facebook, online donate months because this isn't a fishing problem that we no. have this is a clean water problem right. that we have right and 10 most endangered rivers right. in North america i mean when you look at the people who are behind helping save this river i mean we're talking like patagonia a great company supports all kinds of environmental issues yeah. they've donated money to help save this they have there have been a handful of enormous companies who've come forward and recognize like what a disaster this potentially could be. And again, this doesn't just affect these people who live on the river. It's already affected them through the mining company buying all the land up and everything else. And obviously if they poison the river, but like these people in Michigan and everywhere else that's surrounded by Lake Michigan, like we're all affected. Right. 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 Yeah. It it needs to be brought to attention. I appreciate you guys talking about that. That's huge. I mean, being an environmental science and earth science teacher, we've talked about this and, you know, it also brings to a point of your passion 
um, for just the environment as well. And it's not just being a guide and being a fisherman, being an outdoorsman. It's just common sense. It's common sense. <laughs> it's so well said. It's so well said because it really, it, it's really a, a simple thing. Like this is just a bad idea. Yeah. Right. And, and one thing that's been really great about having this fly shop that you guys have let me share is it has given me a platform uh, because we have exposure in the fishing community. We do get some national exposure from some different TV shows and things like that. It's allowed me to have a platform to, to explain what we just talked about, give the explanation of what this is. A non-political, non-anything, just this is this is what could happen, and this is what, what it is. So, When is the mine scheduled to be built, or is it, are they still in the process of purchasing the land? Or Well, that's a, that's a really good question, Joe. They, they have purchased a bunch of land, and the first company to do it was called Akil. It's a Canadian mining company that came here. They've never actually built a mine. I mean, like, this was their first, uh-huh. first foray. They had the money, um, but it, it, the coalition shut, shut them down. Their stock were trading at like three cents, but they had sold the mining uh, rights to another company who has it right now. Now, fortunately, they're showing poor earnings in the last X amount of quarters, so they're not actually moving forward on any of the projects now. But like, there's a lot of gold, there's a lot of copper, there's a lot of these. Uh, um, minerals in there that as long as they're in there we're going to be fighting it so uh, right now it's, it's delay you know I mean it's like fight delay build awareness get people to understand what it is. right right it's been years no I appreciate years. you sharing it I, I you know, it happens 100 miles away from me I don't, I don't even realize what's going on you know? <laughs> it's not an uncommon story yeah I've got people who live on the river like what? What's happening? And this might exactly. be a dumb question, but I mean, did they just discover the gold or how How did that, like, is there always, obviously there's always been gold there, I guess, but. I think geologically, like that portion, Tosh, you could speak on this a bunch, but like geologically, that portion is that of the state has a lot of those types of minerals. Yeah, it. it's, it's stacked. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. I, I remember years ago when I first started guiding up there, there were planes coming over with different telemetry, what appeared to be telemetry on it, like didn't know what was going on, but I'm, I'm sure those were some of the initial Absolutely. stages of location. So no, we'll definitely follow that story and we'll, we'll stay in touch on, on that. That that's an important issue for sure. And Tim's mentions a little bit of his uh, platforms. You, because of what you do have been lucky enough to, you've been on the meat eater yeah, and a video where yeah. they came and uh, you turned a fishing boat into a fly boat. We did. Yeah. That was scary. That was awesome. Very scary. We, we've shot a lot of TV shows in the past through this business, but our friends at Meat Eater wanted to shed light on this mine. And th- those of your listeners that don't know what Meat Eater is, it's Steve Ranella and a group. And it, it's this enormous hunting fishing group that is very, very powerful. But they had a show called Das Boat, where Das Boat, they would find this old garbagey fishing boat and we had to uh, fancy it up enough to fly fish on your fishery and do that. But the whole show was on, you know, what about this mine, the fishery? How do we protect this? So, yeah, that shined a lot of light on That's the river. Huge. And it was a big deal for the coalition. Yeah. And you uh, you actually fixed up the boat right here in the shop. We did. <laughs> Which we is did. cool we as well. We fixed it here. And 
you know, like I said, I've shot a lot of TV shows, but I've never shot one where like there were three cameramen, a full audio <laughs> dude, the producer. I'm like, I'm just a fly fisher. <laughs> scaring me. Yeah. But that was a great point though. I mean, it, it shed a tremendous amount of light on the situation and mm-hmm. was a huge help. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and a lot of it is like podcasts, like what you guys are doing, talking about is a lot of it's just awareness. Like let people know, like you said, Joe, like no idea. It's yeah. not uncommon. This, uh, I guess we can call it a job, but has taken you to many different places. I remember when I first met you through Sam, our good friend, Sam Tion, shout out to Sam. Um, you were heading to Cuba. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you were fly fishing for tarpon. Yep, yep. That was a tagging program that we got to, to do that. But, yeah, the job has been kind of neat. We've had an international travel business, so we've gotten to take and assemble groups around the world from Bolivia to the Amazon, Guyana, Cuba, um, Bahamas, Belize, Argentina, New Zealand. Like, we've gotten to travel the world fishing for yeah. weird stuff. And that also has led you to be an ambassador to several companies as well. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Some of the different companies, you know, seek a handful of guys out, you know, that maybe have an expertise in a certain area and stuff. So yeah, that's been, it's been kind of handy because our friends at Sawyer Oars and I, folks, you yeah. know, taking good care of us mostly because like, I, I, I don't want to, to, to boast, but like our guides were some of the first guides to really guide smallmouth bass, you know, out of drift boats, especially in the Midwest. Right. So they were kind of pioneers in that. And we even wrote a book. Yes. And, you know, that had a bunch of traction. You didn't get to that yet. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So. Yeah. That's, and this, I, I'm going to shout out Sawyer Oars, but I've seen those oars that they sent you, and they're like works of art. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Oh yeah, they're 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 gorgeous. I'd be afraid to put them in the water. <laughs> I, I am every year when they're a brand new pair, but then you just get one little scuff on it. It's like okay, they're tools. Yeah. They're still tools. <laughs> so well, let's let's talk about your book for a little bit too here. Um, how did that come about? How did you decide? Hey, I'm going to write a book. Actually, somebody else said, "Hey, you should write a book." <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, one of our good friends, Dave Karzinski. I mean, he's he's written other books, and um, I mean, he's he, he teaches English. I think he's in Michigan, and he said, "Boy, you guys have literally thousands and thousands and thousands of days of smallmouth knowledge to really talk about writing a book." So we got together, and he and I decided to to do that project. And it's pretty funny because from a guy who couldn't make it through a semester at a technical college, my mom's like, my son wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, the, the book is in its fourth printing right now. It's called Smallmouth Modern Fly Fishing Methods, Tactics and Techniques. And um, it kind of just talks about fly fishing for smallmouth bass and all of that information. Even though I'm one of the authors on the book, really it's it's a culmination of our guides. This is this is a think tank of all of the best in the business who did this with us. So that's it's not my book, it's our book. That's true. That's a good point. So, it is a fantastic book. I've read it. I've got my autograph copy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
another avenue that Tim has had. We mentioned the uh, the podcast he's been on. We mentioned the um, meat eater episode of Das Boat, but you've also were in a DVD on fly fishing in the Midwest. Did a bunch of a bunch that of stuff. Those. Yeah, summer haze. Yeah, you know the story about the DVD. <laughs> See, this is, this so I had to, to bring you, it up. To your listeners, so this is a setup. I'm being set up right now by Tom. <laughs> so our our very good friend Sam Tian. Um, I asked him. We were, we were shooting this video with Robert Thompson called "Summer Haze." It's all on Midwest warm water fly fishing. It's a beautiful. It's a beautiful uh, DVD. They cover smallmouth, and they're also covering muskies. And uh, we had one day where the weather was going to be really cold. It's not going to be good smallmouth fishing to the cameraman. And I said, I've got a place, like maybe we can get a couple of muskies. You know, we'll give her a shot. It's a place we have to take a raft, and it's a lot of work. You've, you've been there. It's a lot of effort to do this. So I call up her buddy, Sam. Like Sam's like, yeah, I'll come help out, row the boat, do some fishing. Well, that day when we shot that video, those of you that aren't familiar with the muskie, they call it the fish of 10,000 casts because you just don't catch them. I mean, it's and fly fishing for them only decreases your odds exponentially. Anyhow, we were fishing in the first five minutes of the trip of muskie that was like over 40 inches eats my fly under the boat and like I miss him immediately. And the cameraman's like, well, this is cool. We went through that day, and I think we moved, for those of you who must be fish know that this is a big number, but I think we moved like 14 or 15 muskies that day, which I didn't catch any of. I missed <laughs> all of them. Sam caught one, and in the end of that video, I'm just yelling at him. I'm just, I was talking about patience and being patient with customers. There's a difference between patience with customers and patience with just like flat out friends. Yeah. You know, the inner voice but came out. The inner voice came out. <laughs> and like, so, so Sam still holds that over me. Like, all you do is yell. <laughs> Summer haze, end of the video, me yelling at Sam, even though he caught all of the fish. And, also, some great music by Michigan Rattlers. Yes, Michigan Fantastic. Rattlers and Old Heavy Hands. Old Heavy Hands, yeah. Some excellent music by both of those bands. So, yeah, we'll both at Michigan during the game, be at least decent at fly fishing. You look at other sports, you know, players that have been recently all over the place. So, it's all about casting. What makes a good fly fisher? And just a guy like me, it just yeah, it's gonna start for the first time. What how long does it take? To you probably never master it. You never master it, but like it's not that hard. Like the, the, I think that the hardest hurdle for anybody is just fly casting. Like no matter how much fishing experience you have with conventional tackle, uh, fly fishing has nothing to do with that. Like it's a different rhythm and an understanding. But you can hire. Pam teaches casting lessons here, like an hour long casting lesson, get you on track. If you can learn to cast. Like you can come in here, we'll tell you what flies to use. It's not like people who uh, say this is like golf or this is something like it's nothing like, uh, you know, like you can become an adequate fly angler at a pretty fast pace. If you're willing to listen, learn million YouTube videos out there. We have a YouTube channel with like classics and everything on there, um, but it's not hard. So it's not hard. It's it's really not hard. There's there's easy steps to it. I like that. Mm -hmm. 
so for the people who don't know fly fishing, what's one of the advantages to fly fishing compared to on an old spin reel? Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's the advantage? What's the difference? Or Well, I, I think the fly fishing thing is kind of unique in a standpoint of, you know how some guys choose to deer hunt with a gun and then some guys choose to deer hunt with a bow and arrow. And it's not because the effectiveness of the bow and arrow is, is, is greater. It's because it's the path. It's the journey. Fly fishing is that. So each of us may have a little bit of that in us, you know, so that's, that's where the fly fishing part comes in. The advantage of fly fishing is with a regular rod and reel, you're using the weight of that rod and reel to cast the line. So the weight of the lures would cast the line. In fly fishing, you're using a thicker line. So the line is what you're casting. You can cast an absolute waste, weightless object to a fish, fly fishing, but you can't do the same thing with that. The other thing about fly fishing that is the biggest appeal is it is true hand-to-hand combat with that fish. When you are connected with a conventional rod, be it a spinning rod, a bait cast, or whatever else, you have that mechanical reel winding it in. When the fish bites, the drag works, and you're working off of a machine. When you're fly fishing, you're physically holding that fly line connected to that fish. You know, I mean, it's it's really hard to explain until you you taste it, see it. So it's a different deal. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. It, you know, the, the one thing I have enjoyed since I've started doing it is just the solitude as well. Yeah. You know, you, you know if you're trout fishing, you might be on a stream by yourself, hearing nature around you, watching bugs come out of the water. It's, it. it's, it's surreal. It's really cool. And, and, and I think that's what a lot of people during COVID – there was a big boom in a lot of outdoor sports from boating to you guys have seen it, you know, and, and everything, even our own purchasing. Like I found myself like, maybe we need an RV, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but fly fishing. We saw a lot of that where people started to just, you know, kind of get into this. Like this might be my jam. I like being alone a little bit. That brings up a good point. COVID in the shop is a whole new experience for you. Ooh, yeah. I did, I did, I did learn that like I have the best customers on the planet because um, during COVID, uh, state of Wisconsin here, we were shut down. It was it was it? How, do you guys remember what the time frame was? Was it two months or three months? It was yeah, substantial. Right. Yeah, uh, but I was in the shop myself and you know working off of social media and like trying to drum up business however we could. But fortunately, our website at tightlinesflyshop.com has an online store and we had an outside pickup already set up on it so that was that was serendipitous that that had happened but one thing that i realized and uh i've I've talked about this in a couple different podcasts i've talked about this to a bunch of customers is like you realized like how great of a family in my customers that i have because i was in here by myself and i don't think in those three months there was not a day that went by like a six pack of beer didn't show up <laughs> every day, yep. you know, like every single day. Um, my daughter was in here one day and this guy is knocking on the window and he gets to my daughter cause she was helping in here said, I need a shirt. She's like, what shirt? He's like a large, I don't care. Like they just wanted to support us. <laughs> so I, I just, I, 
it's it's such a weird business because I get that out of it. I'm not selling insurance or cars or selling fun and these people become my best friends. That's awesome. In this episode, um, we also interviewed Ryan Marks and talked about the outdoor clubs in the high schools. Oh, that's excellent. And those are a big, huge piece to keep those kids outside and doing something and getting passionate about the environment and the world they live in. So, like Ryan said, go here in the interview. I mean, they're all equipment just to for these kids to have that. Yeah. How great would it be for a kid Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen some of that in some high schools, like some fly tying classes. Mm -hmm. Some of some of the teachers that have kind of taken that on themselves and, and, and showed some of these kids and, and my son Bear is he's involved with the archery stuff yep. and it's really cool to see that stuff in schools. It's yeah. important. Um we you talked a little bit about we've talked about your guides. How many guide trips a summer do you run through the shop? Well, because of a couple of guys getting married and having children, they've really put a wrench into my whole business. <laughs> it's just complete shenanigans. Um, but typically we're, we're running like seven or eight guides a summer. You know, we would do anywhere between six and 800 smallmouth trips a year. I think the, the shop this year, you know, the beginning end, we didn't have much, but the shop, we've done over 12,000 smallmouth trips since we've been open. So it's a lot of, wow. a lot of boat rides right there. That's amazing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the things about having a small business like this. Yep. Uh, I've got our store manager, we've got our guys and we have other staff members that help out here, but like we juggle a lot of balls and plates, spin a lot of plates, you know, like I do the social media stuff, you do the newsletter stuff, you do all that stuff, but the social media part is, is so important. It keeps us in touch with those customers, with those friends. So, and you can find us at. Uh, Tightlines Fly Fishing Company or Tightlines Fly Fishing Co. WI on Instagram and, and follow us. You can kind of see the adventures that we go on and what we do because we also have a travel business and we do some unique, weird stuff too. Well, you know what? This has been fantastic. I'm, I am so excited to get your story out i mean your story's out there but it's exciting for us to get your story out on our little podcast and uh just spending some time with us has been incredible and uh, the selfish standpoint it's always good to see you <laughs> <laughs> it's awful good it's great to meet you joe oh this my is, gosh likewise this, is, this has been spectacular he's got a great shop here um like i said you want to touch base look up tight lines and uh, check out their store, support local, and support the Menominee River for sure. And uh, thank you very much. It's been a blast. Can't thank you guys enough. This is a lot of fun, fellas. So Likewise. Thanks, you, thanks for letting me share my story. Thank, thank you. you for sharing. We got a great throwback this this week. Uh, we're going to throw it to 2013. Um, we had one of the earliest manifestations of the most dominating closer in baseball history, and that's Goose Gossage. 100 mile per hour fastball, just just uh you know he had that gruff beard and just like you didn't want to 
see him on the mound. I mean, is there a better throwback candidate for the outdoor fly fishing episode than yeah. Goose Gossage? Yeah. Grew up in Colorado. Absolutely. Lives in Colorado. Yeah. Hunts with his with his kids, with his sons, um, and is a huge sponsor of youth sports in Colorado Springs area. Yeah, absolutely. He's a huge backer of them. And is, uh, I, I had forgotten this, Tosh. Remember, he, he well, this is a little bit before our time, but he was an Appleton Fox. He played uh, played a year here in Appleton in his minor league career. I think they were a class D back in, back in those days. But <laughs> yeah, Richard Goose Gossage came through Appleton on his, on his way to, well, an outstanding major league career. I mean, most of us remember absolutely. him. I mean, certainly some of those Yankee teams. I mean, it just... Uh, you're right. That that and, gruff face, that that close in of, I mean that that's when relievers <laughs> were relievers, right? I mean I still remember oh. the Rollades relief of the you know relief man of the year and the firefighting right. helmet that they get for the trophy and 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 he he would throw three innings at a time. Absolutely right, yeah. and and he talks about yeah. that. You're right, and and I remember yep. when he was here, uh, we had dinner usually. The, the, the way the Red Smith Bank would have set up, obviously, it's here in January, so the weather isn't always the greatest. So we'd, we'd try to get the, the folks in on Monday night, so, the, so we're sure to be here for the show. So we'd have dinner on, on Monday, and we, we were sitting down with Goose Gossage, and, and he was specifically talking about that, talking about in this day and age, and this was in, you know this was 10 years ago he's telling this story, but kind of the same thing. The way baseball is set up right now, you've got to specialize, right? They'll they'll come in, they'll, they'll yep. face a, a lefty and, and go out. Goose is firing him. He's 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 going three full innings. He's coming in in the seventh inning, right. and he's shutting that game down for three innings. I mean, can you imagine that now? Absolutely. Hey, and just a little reminder as we throw back to this this throwback. Uh, if you like these throwbacks from any of our episodes, you can catch the full throwback on our YouTube channel. Absolutely, and it it really really helps. I know everybody begs and pleads for likes and subscribes and and all those clicks. It actually does make a big difference, and for us, it makes a big difference. I mean, we're a nonprofit; all our all our proceeds go back to youth sports, just just like what Goose Gossage is doing. So, those views, those likes, those subscriptions—they they honestly, they truly, they really help. So, if, if you don't mind doing that and, and, and sharing this podcast with all your friends, it only helps our community. So, we we appreciate. It. We're going to thank you in advance for doing that. Red Smith Sports Awards Banquet Throwback. The Red Smith Award, of course, goes to someone who has made some unique contributions to sport in Wisconsin. And also epitomizes the great values that Red Smith exhibited. Let's give a Red Smith welcome. Well, thank you, Roland. I, I can't think of a, a better guy to have this great award presented to me. Um, you know, I started out, I grew up out in Colorado, and uh, all I wanted to do, Mickey Mantle was my favorite uh, player, my idol growing up, and I couldn't imagine getting a guy out like Mickey Mantle or all these great players that I had idolized growing up as a kid out there. And 
All I know is when I signed that contract, I, it was the first time I knew that I needed an agent. Uh, they offered me $5,000 and I held out for eight. <laughs> so, you know, it was never about the money. At that time, I, you know, I would have paid them 8000 if I could have gotten it and uh, paid them to play. But, uh, you know, I promised myself that day, my dad, my father had passed away when I was a junior in high school. And, you know, he was the guy that, you know, uh, threw his arm out. He was a great athlete growing up, and he threw his arm out, and so he never really got the opportunity. But he always would tell me, hey, Rick, he says, you're going to play in the big leagues someday. And I'd say, oh, Dad, please don't say that. You know, I, I just couldn't even imagine. You know, I thought Mickey Mantle, who was my, as I said before, my idol, I thought these guys were like cartoon characters. They were fictitious. They really didn't even exist. And the closest I ever got to uh, a Major League Baseball game was the game, of the game of the week with Dizzy Dean and Pee Wee Reese, if we all remember that. And um, that opportunity came to me that day. I ran in the house. I had gotten a job upon graduating out of high school. I didn't know if I was going to get drafted uh, by a professional baseball team or not. And I came running in the house that day and I said, Mom, Mom, I got a job. I said, uh, up at the park where I grew up playing my youth baseball, coaching the kids that summer. And I was so happy. And I said, Mom, Mom, I got a job, you know. And she said, well, this gentleman over here has a job for you, too. And I had my back to him. I didn't even know he was there. And I turned around and there was a scout, Bill Kimball from North Platte, Nebraska, who had been scouting me unknown, you know, I didn't know that he had been scouting me. And uh, right then and there, you know, when I signed that contract, uh, started my professional career. And I was a scared kid. I had never been out of the state of Colorado, and I got on a plane, ended up signing that contract, got on the plane. They sent me to Sarasota, Florida in June of 1970. And, uh, I got on that plane, and when I got to sit Tampa, Florida, it was about 11.30 at night, and it was June, and we all know how hot June is in, in Florida. And uh, Colorado, we don't have much humidity. I'd never experienced that before in my life. And I got halfway down the stairs. It was when we didn't even have uh, jetways, and they rolled those stairs up to the plane, and we got off, and we were deplaning, and I got halfway down. I opened, came out the door of the plane, and wow, this blast of heat hit me and almost knocked me down and I thought I said to myself and I said it out loud I said wow those jets of that plane are hot and this guy this guy right in front of me stopped and I almost knocked him down the stairs and he said son he said those aren't the jets of the plane I hate to say he said welcome to Florida and uh, that was 11:30 at night but uh, that was one of the first experiences that I had I spent a couple of weeks down in uh, Sarasota, Florida. I did very well down there. And guess where I was sent next? To Appleton, Wisconsin. <laughs> so this was the second stop of a uh, career that I promised myself, hey, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. And all I wanted to do when I started out was put on a big league uniform one time. That's all I really thought about. I thought, man, what must that be like just to put a big league uniform on? And 
you know, I little did I know that I would have the career that I had, but I ran into some great people early on in my career, as Roland Heeman alluded to. Roland was one of those guys. He was the general manager of the White Sox at the time. Chuck Tanner, who was a tough guy. And man, you know, uh, I look back at the greatest teachers that I ever had, and they were the toughest. And I think we'll all agree with that. When we look back, we may not have agreed at the time, but when we look back in hindsight and think about, you know, the people that influenced us, those were the best teachers, were the toughest. And uh, I had Chuck, who, like I said, was very tough. Dick Allen took me under his wing. And it was an education that all the money in the world would not have paid for. He taught me how to pitch from a, from a great hitter's standpoint and where I had to make those pitches and what, the, what pitches were difficult for those hitters to handle. So it was an education that, uh, like I, I, I said, I could have had all the money in the world and it couldn't have paid for that. Johnny Sane was the greatest pitching coach that I ever came in contact with uh, even after that. Uh, he was my first pitching coach in the big leagues and uh, you know he taught me so much. I had no idea even how to throw a breaking ball. I remember, uh, you know, spinning a curveball in Quad Cities one night, uh, my first time here uh, in 70, in 1970. I'd let go of that curveball and it flipped out of my hand and went in their dugout. <laughs> well, I think I struck out the next three guys. They, had, they didn't want any part of that. But, uh, you know, that was when I first found out that, hey, just a little bit wild's okay. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I liken my career to a kid, to a little kid, a 10-year-old kid that goes to Disney World and waits in a two-hour line and gets on his favorite ride or her favorite ride, and it lasts for, you know, two minutes. You know, I got on the greatest ride and it lasted for 22 years. And I still, thank you. I still have to pinch myself that I had the kind of career that I had. The nine different teams that I played for, uh, the Yankees, you know, I grew up a Yankee fan. My dad and my mom, my whole family were great Yankee fans. You know, growing up in Colorado, we really didn't have any connection to any other ball club. You know, now we have the Colorado Rockies, but back in the day we had minor league baseball. The White Sox were an affiliate of Colorado Springs. and. Um, you know, my mom used to wait on those guys and she was a waitress and she loved waiting on those players and that was really the, one of her highlights and she used to always talk about it and, you know, getting on that best ride and, and then having it culminated with an election to the Hall of Fame, people go, how come it took so long, eight years of eligibility to get in the Hall of Fame? I said, hey, you know, the longer you have to wait for something, the sweeter it is. And uh, that was so true in that, in that case. Um, you know, to run into these guys at the, at the juncture um, in my career firsts, so many great firsts. It was like being in the right spot at the right time. And you know, I can't help but think that Appleton had an influence on my career because everybody was so genuine up here, genuine and, and and so friendly, and the people that I stayed with the two years that I played here uh, opened their homes up to us, uh, to me and to the rest of the players. And, and I still have friends today that, uh, you know, Ed Holtz, 
was the general manager of the Foxes. You know, I loved those old ballparks, Rob. You know, the lights were lousy. <laughs> I'm not quite sure that I'd had the career if I'd been in your stadium, you know? With those new lights and the bright lights and throwing 100 miles an hour, man, I love those dark lights in the Midwest League. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that uh, it's a storybook uh, career. Uh, the friendships that I made up here. I came back when shortly after the new stadium had been built, Goodland Field, I drove by there, Milt took me by there last night and, and uh, you know, it just brought back so many great memories. And uh, the Midwest people going up to Milwaukee and playing those great brewer clubs and the Yankees, you know, when we came into town, wow, had that, did that become a great, um, rivalry, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays, it was the beast of the East, you know, um, man, those were some, that was a great division back then, and man, it was a knockdown drag out, the parody, everybody was great, and you know, that was when I really saw uh, how great a team, I, I played with the 78 Yankees, we won a world championship, I played in three World Series, uh, was selected to nine All-Star teams, um, just the things that happened to me, it, you know, baseball has a great saying in, in that, you know, baseball is made up of guys that have been humbled and those that soon will be. And, uh, you know, that was told to me at an early age. And another thing that Chuck Tanner really, really emphasized was you, and he would get right in your face and he had terrible breath, he smoked cigars. And, uh, I would even say that if he was sitting right here tonight. But he was a tough guy, and he would get nose to nose with you and look you in the eye. And one of the things that he told me, he said, take care of the fans. And I think that's what we've heard from all these people that have come up here with these different organizations, that the fans, you guys and folks and girls and ladies and boys, and some of us never grow up. But it's all about the fans. And without you guys, we wouldn't have a game of baseball. We wouldn't have a hockey game. We wouldn't have basketball. And it's all because of your support. And, you know, I tell people all the time, I get to talk to a lot of people at different banquets. And baseball, every life's lesson is out there on that baseball field, as well as that football field. And, uh, you know, baseball is a perseverance. You know, I said baseball is the toughest game of all to play. There is nothing, and I don't know if you guys can think of anything, but that you can fail at seven out of ten times and be a superstar. <laughs> I don't think so. We wouldn't, be, we wouldn't have a job if we failed seven out of ten times at the things we do for a living. So that just really says it in a nutshell about how really difficult that game of baseball is to play. And it's not all about the wins and losses. I think in youth sports and our kids, I think we put too much emphasis on wins and losses. It's how you play the game. It's not how, if you win, sure, that's a big feather in your cap, but it's how you go about it. And, you know, I was very, very lucky to run into Roland and Chuck and Dick and Johnny and all those other great coaches. And even after my career that first year, um, you know,
the people that I met and the fans and, and people that my association with different people around the country, those nine different teams, the great managers I played for, um, the great teammates that I had was amazing. And like I said, it was like getting on that best ride at Disney World and lasting for 22 years. And I want to thank all of you here in Appleton and what a great community you have, Green Bay up the road, oh my God. Mike and I have something in common football-wise. I'm a Denver Bronco fan, so we're, we're in the same boat. And, uh, but we're going to knock the shit out of them next year, okay? So thank you. All right, NoosaCast listeners, it's time for everybody's favorite. It's the, uh, used to be called the Forgotten and forgetting and it's even confusing for us and it was confusing for you guys as well so we're going to kind of do a little rebrand and we're going to call forgetting it and forgotten was confusing Tosh? It, it was it was confusing for me i was even forgetting what i was forgotten so <laughs> um we're going to kind of change it a little bit we're going to rebrand this joel and we're going to call it the forgotten and never forgetting section so yes. I, I think it's going to be a little easier to remember and people can kind of think about and it's going to yes. be easier for us to keep track of things as well. It's forgotten and never forgetting, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, let's go. Do you have a good one to start us off with? Well, I don't know if it's a good one. It's it's more of a, an observation, something here that I'm I'm forgotten. It's forgotten. I really do want to forget this. I, I don't really understand what's going on, but why are they building so many car washes at like every single corner? <laughs> I'm just very, very confused. I mean, there's... Like a car wash for every car almost, isn't there? There is. Don't you remember when you just used to wash your car in your driveway? <laughs> yes, yes. You know, being a, being a letter carrier, I do stumble across that every once in a great while, but uh, yeah, it doesn't happen nearly as much. <laughs> and that just, uh, we, we should have had this for an old look at new, but do you remember the old octopus car wash oh, yeah. down on Richmond Street? Down, with a great big octopus up on the on the roof? No, that's, that was the uh, where Good Company is now, if I'm not... yeah. From yeah, absolutely. Right. right in that parking lot there, yep. for sure. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Octopus car wash. I don't know. I just seems like there was only like three car washes back in the day. Now there's just, there's as many car washes as Starbucks. So Yeah. Well, the, the club car washes are partially owned by Kansas City Chiefs, Travis Kelsey. Oh, very nice. Yeah. So I found that out when I was researching what it was. So yeah, interesting yeah. stuff. What is yours, Tosh? <laughs> well, um, I, I kind of wanted to forgets our dependence on technology and I, there's a we we're just i was just looking um there's so many concerts now that are requiring people to lock their phone in a box when they go into the show so they can just experience what these musicians and actors and different things like that are are doing and the art of it instead of holding up their phone so they can get the right picture for a place on their Instagram or their TikTok or things like that. And I, I no, you're you're absolutely right. That's what I love about Milo Music. The, you know, though they make a conscious effort to to not use your your cell phone. Uh, it, I you're right, and, and and maybe maybe I just don't understand. But why can't you use your eyes and your ears and just your soul to bring in the music? Well, you know, yeah. and listen to it the way it was supposed to be made. Because and, that's. And, what you remember, it's not going to be the picture. It's going to be what's in your head. And right. you're going to remember that, you know, how that song made you feel or the emotions that it brought. And uh, I, I don't think that 
a picture or a 10 second video is going to do that. It's what's in your head. And we got to get used. We got to get back to using our head a little bit more. <laughs> no, I, I agree. And I know people get sick of me talking about fish, but this reminds me of, of a, of an inner, it, it's along the same lines. Trey, who's the, the front man for fish was telling a story one time. He has this picture in his house. Um, it, it's them from the back of the stage, them looking out into the crowd. And he said the most amazing thing in that picture, and this was just sometime in the last 10 years, cell phones were very prevalent. So the most amazing thing in that picture was nobody had a cell phone, right? They were just there experiencing the show. Yeah. And it's funny. Now you see a picture and everybody has their phone out and people are like, look at that guy. That's the one person who doesn't have their phone out. Right. And I'm like, yeah, that guy gets made fun of. Yeah, it should be just the opposite. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> kind of like forgetting and forgotten, right? We can't keep this stuff straight. Right. So that leads us to the never forgetting. So, Joe, why don't you uh, kick that one off? Uh, well, I'm never forgetting that this episode for, for one has been a really, really fun episode. Just just for me personally, because I didn't know anything about fly fishing like I said before, I'd never been in a fly fishing shop, but I'm never forgetting this day to be, to be able to hang out with Tim and Dave uh, uh, and you, you know, having a, having a couple of beers, just talking. I, we talked about everything and just, it was so much fun. It, it was, we were just hanging out in a fly fishing shop, shooting the bull. And, and I can't think of a better, better thing to, to never forget in my life than, than that afternoon. So yeah. sure. to Tim, Cheers. Thank you. And you too, Tosh and Dave. That that was that was a blast. Yeah, I'm just gonna piggyback with that too. I mean, just spending time with friends. You know, don't forget yeah. those times. I mean, that's that was great. We we talked about everything from from the Austin, Texas music scene with Dave, uh his his building of guitars, uh, yes, which is yeah. absolutely incredible. In fact, he got a little tiny shipment of wood while we were sitting there. And uh to to all the all the uh amazing things at, at the shop and our you know lives and our kids and everything it was a it was excellent an excellent day it really was one uh one we're never forgetting <laughs> exactly well with that tosh we uh i think we finally got this episode down so maybe we'll see what happens here in episode five so stay tuned for that one for sure but uh we appreciate everybody sticking along with us and we will see you next thursday for episode five of the NoosaCast. for listening to the NoosaCast. We appreciate your support. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do so and tell a friend. A huge thanks to Digstown for all the music in today's episode. Catch a gig or find them on Spotify. Northeastern Wisconsin Sports Advancement is a 501c3 organization. Our mission is to raise money, provide support, and create awareness for youth sports organizations in Northeastern Wisconsin. We do this primarily through the Red Smith Sports Award Banquet and the NoosaCast. Each year, we give back to the community through three initiatives, the Every Kid Plays, 
the Gives Back Initiative, and scholarships to student athletes.